0: Like, am I never going to make it because I didn't grow up with the Atlantic on my coffee table and my parents like reading to me from Proust or whatever? Um, you know, like am I am I always gonna be behind because I started out behind? And like, i I just got really, really interested in that in that sensation and and I interested in other people who felt like kind of outcasts or like they were trying to break in from this like outside uh, uh, starting starting point.
1: Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So this week, I've been working a lot on trying to get into the right groove for life under lockdown. You know, for the past several weeks, things have just felt so crazy that there's no sense of normalcy. But I feel like now I'm starting to adjust and I can get back to at least some semblance of settling into how things are going to be for the next while. And so uh, the first thing that I tried was to to really double down on creating an intense schedule. Personally, I'm really drawn to this sort of thing uh, because I find uh, you know myself often working under conditions where I don't really have very many external constraints. And so it can be really, really helpful to develop strategies for imposing your own structure on your time. And so uh, I, I tried going really deep into that, and part of it was you know, definitely sort of being maniacally overambitious, but part of it was also motivated by the idea that maybe I could get into a good rhythm by doing the same thing every day. But uh, essentially what I found was what happened for me was that even though I was able to follow the schedule decently well, I uh, found myself getting really anxious and, you know, just not enjoying myself at all. There was so much concern about what I was going to do in the future that I was more or less completely miserable in the moment. And so I decided to let that go. Now uh, is not the time for strict regiments. Now is the time for going with the flow, for being flexible, and for matching what you're doing to where you're at in the moment. And so for the last few days, things have been going much better for me. My theme for this week is really being grounded in the present moment. And uh, one thing that I've been thinking about with the podcast is the precedent for the rate at which I want to release them. Uh, The sort of trade-off here is that I could really dig in and try and release multiple episodes per week or I could do a more leisurely one per week. I think the the baseline reasonable thing to do is once per week which is still more than most of these sort of shows do but the reason uh, sort of on the other other side is that with interview shows Oftentimes, people aren't listening to every episode. They're looking for a match between someone they find interesting to be interviewed and the kinds of questions that the interviewer tends to ask. So uh, that's certainly how I evaluate them in my own listening. And uh, so I think this means that the value is not necessarily in the weekly rhythm like it would be for a conversational duo or for a storytelling podcast. But uh, it's in essentially in creating a large repository. The difference between getting 50 entries versus 100 per year in that repository is huge. So it's a uh, balance between whether I want to push myself or whether I want to play the slow and steady game. And uh, what I've sort of settled on semi-officially is that the once a week game is really right for me. Even though I, I technically could do more than that, uh, or even just do things on an ad hoc basis, I want to make sure that I continue to enjoy what I'm doing here on the show and not not push myself uh, into doing something that becomes a burden. So I also am constantly trying to bring myself down from getting worked up about short-term gains and reminding myself that I'm here for the long game. Uh, I think maybe now that the pod has some momentum, I can afford to be more selective about the people I've had on. Not, not that anyone on here has been riffraff, uh, but I, I haven't been overly systematic in selecting people. And perhaps I can also aim at some bigger figures who it wouldn't have made sense to reach out right away when the pod was just beginning. I feel like I'm sort of, in general, at a point where the pod exists, which is certainly not a guarantee when you're just starting off. And so now it's time to become a little bit more deliberate about what I'm doing, more so than when I was just beginning. And uh, so if you're interested in this sort of stuff, then uh, I highly recommend signing up for my newsletter definitely the most personal writing I do. It's called Dear Luke and each week on Friday I send out a letter about what I've been thinking about in terms of productivity and creativity and life in general and what's been going well and what I've found tough. So you can subscribe at CodyCommerce.com newsletter. You can also follow me on Twitter at CodyCommerce where I give some uh, some daily briefs on this sort of thing. Okay, so let's get into this week's guest. Uh, but right before we do that, I just want to say thanks to David Pizarro of the Very Bad Wizards podcast. I fucked up my audio pretty severely on this recording, and David, who is a very good wizard when it comes to audio, uh, has uh, he also has a lot of fancy plugins. And uh, he really helps me unfuck it up. So um, right, so my guest this week is Olga Kazan. Olga is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Her debut book actually comes out today on April 7th, 2020, uh, and it's called Weird. It's a topic that I'm super drawn to and uh, is one of the themes that I've sort of been perennially fascinated by in this show. It's that often what gives us our unique edge and our our power and our advantages uh, has to do with the ways in which we don't fit into the world we find ourselves a part of. And so I'm super excited to read the book. She's done some amazing reporting for it. And I feel super bad for her that it's releasing during the chaos of the pandemic. So make sure to get out there and support her and purchase a copy. Or I guess at the very least, keep an eye out for it when it comes out in paperback in the future so she can have another shot at a big release at that point. So in this conversation, we get into her story and how she got her start as a journalist, that sort of thing. It's very interesting. But uh, that's enough of me. Here is Olga Kazan. Anyway, so I'm super excited about your new book, and I think this is a really cool idea, and I think that there's a lot to work with here, and so I'm excited to get more into how you're approaching it, and uh, I'm you know, reading about it in, in the book and everything. But uh, yeah, so I know so you, you were born in Russia, right?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And then you, you grew up in Texas.
0: Yeah, in, in West Texas, yeah.
1: And so that was your first uh legitimate experience of being weird. So what how did that what what did that look like for you? Oh.
0: Um yeah, so um when I so um uh, most Russians in the US are Jewish. That uh we were part of a Jewish refugee resettlement program from the Soviet Union um that happened in the late 80s and um uh so Basically, what happened is that this agency called HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Association, um, brought me, my family and a bunch of other families over to the U.S. from Russia and settled us in high, like in areas where there were going to be a lot of Jews. Um, And uh, so we ended up in L.A. originally because that's like a highly Jewish area. And, um, but it was like really hard for my parents there to, to make it like my, my dad, like, you know, like people weren't like hiring random Russian speaking, um, people like for high paid jobs. <laughs> and, um, so your so, parents
1: did not speak English. No, is that correct? no, no, okay. they didn't.
0: Um, so they were like really struggling in LA. It was like super expensive. So they decided to move to West Texas, um, because it was really cheap. Um, and because my dad's, the, like little job that he had kind of tenuously clung to at the time offered to relocate him to um west texas uh because his like the owner of the company was moving there or something this was in the middle of the oil boom and like if i, I don't know like how old you are or whatever but like there was like this big oil boom in the early 90s and like a lot was happening with like the newly like capitalist russia and the u.s with like oil and stuff anyway so my parents kind of like decided to seize this moment and move to midland texas um and that is sort of where the weirdness began <laughs> um and uh yeah it was it was like exactly what you would expect as like three russian refugees um in midland texas <laughs>
1: and how, how old were you at the time when you got there um,
0: i was four when we got to midland um oh. yeah so midland is like the i mean i remember la Um, but Midland is like the basis of all my first experiences.
1: And so, um, were there, were there things that, uh, sort of when you were in elementary school or or whatever, secondary school that you did that other people looked at and they're like, that's not a Texas behavior.
0: (laughs) I mean, yeah, like every behavior I had. Right. So like, we didn't have, like, there's no football in Russia and there's no, like i mean you know whatever rodeo in russia like there's no um i mean and also we were really poor and i think that's like something that um a lot of um you know in in a lot of ways i just had the same struggles that a lot of poor kids have which is like um not having the right like school supplies and the right clothes and the right you know whatever but on top of that i also didn't have any cultural context and i also was like um i mean i spoke english Like, I pretty quickly, I like caught up with everyone, but it was still like shaky sometimes. And I like didn't fully always, I mean, I understood more than I could express myself, but sometimes I would have like an awkward turn of phrase or something. And I remember that being like a source of um, shame, like, um, you know, just, just have Like even my teachers would actually like join in on it. Like, um, uh, like, if i if i didn't know the exact english word for something they would kind of like mercilessly tease me <laughs> um yeah and it was yeah it was, character. <laughs> right right it was like it was like uh very uh yeah it was intense it was yeah <laughs>
1: um and so okay so we're, we're so four is pretty young and four-year-olds and on are still you know they're, they're pretty adaptable so of course you came from this different sort of cultural context But um, I assumed that there was a relatively high level of integration for you as opposed to, you know, your parents who would have been, uh, you know, I'm assuming much older. And um, so, yeah, so what I mean, so how much of that differentness stuck with you while you were growing up? Did you feel perpetually like an outsider? Uh, Because, you know, today, like just listening to your accent, it's not like people, oh, something's something's very Russian about her. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so how long did that feeling stick around for?
0: Yeah, I really wish that I could say that it, like, completely went away, um, because I was so adaptable, and I don't know, I've had trouble explaining this, like, can I ask where you grew up?
1: I grew up in Seattle.
0: I don't know, I think it might be different for people who grew up in big cities, or, like, in, um, like, um, I- I'm just gonna come around and say, like, liberal places with, like, a lot of immigrants, um, Uh, it's just, it was just super hard in Texas the entire time, like the entire, the entire time until I left when I was 18. Like I didn't have an accent. I've never had a Russian accent, but like, uh, it, it was just, it was just really difficult. It's difficult to be named Olga in Texas. It's, it was, it was super duper hard. My parents like didn't know all the stuff that you're supposed to do as like a normal Texan family. And it like led to a lot of like shame and scorn and like that's like overwhelmingly what I remember from those years and it like maybe is not as bad as like if I had never learned to speak English or like if I had permanent like you know like if I uh, there's obviously ways it could have been worse but but for whatever reason like I just never assimilated like you said you know I never um, I never got to where I had a lot of friends or felt welcome or felt um, like part of a group
1: okay so that was your experience in texas and then so did you because you never really felt um fully texan let's say did you was it important for you to leave as soon as you can for college or whatever
0: oh yeah i mean i was i was i mean well so it was like a a, a decision point for me because i got into the university of texas at austin um which is by all accounts, completely great. Like like everyone has a wonderful experience there. Like keep Austin weird is like the motto of the city. Uh, I have never heard that anyone felt like they couldn't find a kindred spirit at UT Austin. Um, but even that was like too Texan for me. Like I was like, I have to do something else. I have to like, um, I have to explore a different environment and like just find some place where like there might be other people like me. And um, so I really only applied to schools outside of Texas. And I uh, went to American University, in, which is also in D.C.
1: Oh, OK, nice. Um, and then is it true that so, so you went to journalism school after that? Right. And that was was that at USC?
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I studied politics at um, AU and then I worked in D.C. for a little bit. And then I went to journalism school um, at USC in L.A.
1: Okay, so let's. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested to hear about your sort of trajectory as a journalist because it seems like you were pretty goal directed, pretty ambitious in that trajectory. Um, at least from your, from your output, uh, which you know spans uh, quite quite a long time, uh, and uh, sort of when you were relatively young and all that sort of stuff. So, when you when you got to American University, did you know that you wanted to study journalism? Um, and was there a connection with politics there? Or did you did you try the sort of politics major and then uh, realize that you wanted to report on something? Or what? How did that sort of transition look like?
0: Yeah, I really wanted to be a journalist um, my entire life. I never wanted to do politics, um, really. But um, right before I got to college, my parents um, were really pressuring me to not do journalism. Um, part of like. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to, like, um, assume anything about you. Are you an immigrant by chance?
1: I'm not. No, I'm, uh, I'm my my parents are both American.
0: Um, so immigrant families um, often have this, like, preoccupation with their kids making a lot of money and having a stable life for themselves. Like, that's why you often hear the joke about, like, being a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. Um, that's That's because, like, this precarity, this, like, horrible, horrible, impoverished, like, scary time that they had when they first moved to the U.S., they're like so obsessed with their kids not experiencing that same thing so they they basically like looked up you know whatever like journalist in parade magazines like average salaries uh issue.
1: Oh, so they had data like... to back up their arguments.
0: <laughs> right. And it said like, you know, a reporter, twenty-two thousand dollars a year. Uh and they were like, Yeah, you're not doing this. Um <laughs> so I majored in politics to like appease them because I was like, Oh, I can be a lawyer with this like pre law politics major or whatever. Um But um, like pretty like increasingly, even as I was in the major, I was like, I hate this. And I um, wanted to be a journalist and like was looking for opportunities to do journalism. Um, Unfortunately, when I graduated, it was the Great Recession and there were no journalism jobs. um, So I went to grad school to kind of um, both to learn journalism and to kind of like um, be kind of like in in a safe spot for a bit while there were absolutely no jobs
1: <laughs> yeah right you, you totally have this important decade of your career bookended by these uh great economic declines both in 2008 and then again here uh with the release of your first book uh and of course the you know most significant pandemic of the modern era
0: yeah i don't know how i got so lucky that um <laughs> uh yeah that my um my career is is like yeah bookended by apocalypses um uh yeah i mean it's been it's been an interesting one um (laughs) i mean honestly like uh i would say that this is less like nothing was scarier than graduating into the great recession um this is i would say scarier like uh existentially and for mankind and like more worrying but it's not like I'm. I would say I'm like less worried about my finances uh, now, just because I've had the ten years of experience working.
1: Right. Okay. So I want to. I want to back up just a little bit before that. So you said you were always interested in, in journalism. What. What drew you to that?
0: Yeah. I think this is like. I mean, this is part of what I um, write about in the book. Is that like, I feel like because I was always on the periphery and I never felt um, really a part of anything it kind of developed this sense in me that I'm like this like natural observer of events. Like, I don't know. I never liked, I never like really enjoyed like cheering at pep rallies or like, um, or I don't know. I don't even like at the end of yoga where they're like, say om together. I like, I don't like to do anything together. Like, I like like to just like observe what's happening. Um, And I think that that feeling kind of got, was like a very early feeling for me and became sort of a, I don't know just like something that i was like naturally good at like i feel like i'm good at analyzing a situation in a clear way and seeing kind of seeing it from all different perspectives and kind of like i don't know nora efron calls it the wallflower at the orgy um which is like a very colorful way of saying like you're someone who is better at like reporting on something than like actually participating in it um and i think that was always my I don't know. I just think it's like sort of my natural personality. And I think I just like discovered that early on. Um, and I'm also just like hyperverbal, but never had anyone to talk to. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, someone listen to what I have to say. <laughs> I don't
1: know. <laughs> um, and then, okay. So, uh, and then, so how did you translate that sort of initial feeling and intuition that I'm sure lots of people who read your book will sort of um, feel a kinship with, which is that, okay, I um my relationship to event, events is one of an observer not a participant and um but this sort of gives me an edge and while everyone else is in the midst of sort of feeling the feelings inherent in the performing in the pep rally or saying om oh, during yoga or whatever you are able to stand back remove yourself from the uh feeling of being caught up in it and have this sort of more removed um more objective, Um, More analytical perspective on it so when did you start to treat that as an intellectual problem that you were interested in okay well this is something me and other people people who I'm interested in sort of have this in common and there are these traits and there is sort of a you know maybe uh, I'm sure you touched on different scientific uh sort of analyses of this sort of thing when did you start to treat it as an intellectual sort of puzzle
0: yeah um You know, that's a good question, because I, I don't know, because I feel like a lot of, like, when you first get into journalism, you're, like, sort of scrambling around to find your niche, or at least I was, I don't know, maybe other people, like, fine with their rhythm right away, Um, but you're kind of writing, like, the daily news spot that's, like, a thousand people marched today in uh because they were upset about the new park regulations you know and like you're like okay i wrote something you know i did journalism but is it like my you know ultimate kind of thing that i am thinking about or is it just like am i just describing this like commodity event and like I don't know. I think, honestly, like The Atlantic, I have to give it credit for the fact that, like, it is um, the sort of place where you can kind of explore bigger questions and bigger ideas um, and kind of, like, probe, um, yeah, probe for, like, kind of answers or, like, big themes that tie things together, um, as opposed to just saying, like, Mayor speaks out against Dog. Whatever, like <laughs> sorry, I don't, I'm like I like don't even know. I'm I sorry. think
1: you had some uh, um, you know, mixed metaphors. There's like a, a, a dog bites man, man bites dog. Journalists and trolls. Yeah,
0: like whatever the mayor is speaking out against. It's okay. That day, English like, is your you second don't language, don't to... so it's... yes. Yeah, I'm still struggling. um <laughs> no but it's like it's like you don't have to report on like whatever the city council decided about the school taxes like you could just you can just you know you can kind of look at like what's most interesting so i think part of it is just a function of where i work and the fact that they give you that um leeway um and i think that's that's really cool yeah
1: so okay so um How can can you say a little bit more about how you made that transition from sort of entry level post USC journalism degree um, early opportunities to the big time at the Atlantic?
0: Oh, thanks for calling me the big time. Um,
1: uh, (laughs) um... (laughs) Oh, I mean, I think you're totally I think the Atlantic, I mean, at least from an outside perspective, like that is totally top notch um, perspective on here's what's happening. And here is a perspective on it right it's like here are the facts and here is how i'm saying we should interpret them right which is uh that higher level and she that at a really high quality as the atlantic does and as you do is i think this this very high level of of reporting and journalism
0: yeah totally um i mean like uh yeah um i think you're right um how did i make it okay uh it is like not gonna be very satisfying to hear me describe this, but this is what (laughs) happened. Um, So I graduated from USC, it's a total nightmare, the recession's still going on, there are no jobs, I'm applying to a million jobs, Um, nothing is coming through, I'm like having panic attacks every night, my boyfriend's like, i don't know what's wrong with you it same boyfriend that i have now um yeah so it was like sort of frustrating and like i was just like beating my head against the wall i would say the big turning point is that i went to um this online journalism conference and i um sort of like took my last dollar to this um like it's called ona and i was like i have to get a job here and i um like walked around and found this group of washington post reporters and uh i um very uncharacteristically like wriggled my way into their circle like physically wriggled like i i was like oh i'm (laughs) one of you and they were like and like they would tell jokes and i would like laugh really hard at them and like they would like banter and i would be like oh yeah i totally also really like that and like uh i i just and finally they were like who are you what are you doing here and i was like oh yeah i'm i like would really like a job at the washington post (laughs) i'm just this random person and i i'm also here and i really want (laughs) to hang out with you guys forever and preferably a like financially beneficial way for me and um And so um, they were like, okay, whatever, we're not going to like this is strange. Get out of here. Um, But I I somehow like like in the million resumes that I pressed into people's hands at that conference, I somehow got one into the hands of like a like tertiary hiring manager um, who passed along to this person who needed like a temporary web producer for a sponsored blog about small businesses that was only going to be paid for a year and would not pay any benefits. <laughs> <laughs> and they like called me and they were like, do you want to do this job? And I was like, absolutely, yes. <laughs> so I packed everything I had into my Nissan Versa and drove across the country from L.A. to Washington, D.C. for like the lowest amount of money I have ever made uh, ever in my life at that point. And... maybe the
1: lowest amount of money anyone's ever made
0: <laughs> i i doubt that like i think there's <laughs> probably like bricklayers somewhere that are making less but like
1: i think bricklayers make way more
0: um probably <laughs> you, i don't know yeah you're probably right but it, it was it was it was like it was like a crazy like it was like one of those things that only happened during the great recession because people would take any job um and so i did that for a while i did that for, I I didn't stay. It was only a year contract, but I switched over to the global section of the post while I was like working out that year. Wait,
1: so I have to ask, what did your parents say about this?
0: Oh, they were so my dad, I blocked my dad on my cell phone because he was literally calling me like, don't do it. Don't do it. Like as I was like packing my whatever, like sweater dresses into my Versa. (laughs)
1: He was. He, he, I had,
0: he had my dad. M- I had my dad going into like a like a spam filter. Wait. On my email. So
1: okay. So spoiler alert. Did your have your have your parents come around to your journalism career?
0: They have since then. Only because I'm like successful. Yeah. <laughs> That's. I mean.
1: <laughs> like, look. We give a fuck about your happiness uh and your and your <laughs> self actualization. Let's let's see the 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 pay stubs.
0: Right, no, totally, yeah. Um, okay, yeah. well, but congratulations. No, they I'm were, like, glad this super. story
1: has a happy ending, at least.
0: Sure, it's happy if your parents like love you as long as you make money. Um, no, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like, no, they they came around, yeah, but they were very against it. But I I just didn't care at that point. I was so I was so desperate to like break in, and I just it was a good oppor- it was a good opportunity. Like, despite it's like not super financial stability, yeah.
1: Okay, and then so you got to the East Coast and um you've just sort of stuck around um just sort of moving up in uh positions and that sort of stuff from there
0: yeah like so i i worked at the post for a while i, I worked on the global section um which is how i think i got the first atlantic job that i had which was as global editor um when i started in 2013 um and that i i think i got that because of that international news connection and then a, a spot opened up on the health team and i switched over again like a year later um, which is kind of like what happened like I feel like every early journalist has like a bunch of like 10-month like stretches on their resume because they're like <laughs> how do I get where I really want to be um, and then like they get there and then like they stay there for 10 years like I'd have like I have so um, yeah that's pretty much what happened
1: okay yeah that's okay so that that's very interesting and then so my next sort of uh, thing that I'm curious about so you've written about a lot of different kinds of things um, or, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe I don't know the entire breadth of your work, but it seems like there's, there's quite a bit of variation. They're interested in a lot of different angles on different kinds of stories. And so, um, uh, well, when did you v- realize, Hey, I've got something interesting here and I want to make a fucking book out. Of it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, that's a really good question. I um, okay, I, I'm going to give you, like, some iterations of the book that happened before this book happened. Love. I, I I, mean, I feel like a lot of reporters sort of want to write a kind of a version of a memoir, basically. And, like, I actually like those books. Like, I think a lot of the best books by reporters are, like, memoir plus. Like, I'm reading a pretty good one right now called Women's Work by Megan Stack, um, which is basically, like, a memoir of her life as a foreign correspondent relying on these domestic workers um even as she herself uh like tries to make her career and like write her own work and stuff and she's sort of exploring this dynamic between her work and the work of her like domestic employees um and anyway i think like that is like sometimes derided as like cheap or something but i actually really love that um kind of genre and so at first i was sort of just really interested in um like Russian Jews and I got like really interested in exploring the history of Russian Jews in America but then I was like you know this is like pretty narrow and like there's I think like a million Russian Jews in the U.S. at this point but um that's I mean even I don't know it's just like not really the topic has sort of been done and I was like I don't know like who really cares about this other than people who are exactly like us? Um, so I sort of, like, branched out. And and I realized that the real reason why I was, like, interested in this, like, Russian-Jewish idea was because this feeling of, like, being different had permeated my entire life. Like, I, um, like, I, I basically, like, every time I run into a roadblock, like, a lot of those panic attacks that I was having during the Great Recession were... Like, am I never going to make it because I didn't grow up with the Atlantic on my coffee table and my parents, like, reading to me from Proust or whatever? Um, you know, like, am I am I always going to be behind because I started out behind? And like, I, I just got really, really interested in that in that sensation. And, and I interested in other people who felt like kind of outcasts or like they were trying to break in from this, like, outside uh, uh, starting starting point. So um, I, I kind of... I, I, okay, so I have to give a ton of credit to my agent, Howard Yoon, who's amazing. Um, he and I, we started thinking about how to approach this topic. And essentially where we landed was interviewing other people who are different from everyone else around them and figuring out what is, like, sort of the tie that binds of being weird, essentially.
1: Okay, and so um, did you... So, okay, so how... What was your process like for testing that idea? Because, uh, you know, as, as I've stated, I'm very sympathetic to the overall idea. And then, you know, you, of course, are able to, to capture really unique sort of perspectives, both your own and other in your writing, and you've done that before. But, so you have a, a book full of sort of pieces, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure both sort of interview stuff, personal stuff, and maybe some research stuff um, about weirdness. How do you go about, what's your process for Refining those, sort of figuring out what the best way to deliver them is um, uh, what what does that sort of look like for you?
0: yeah, so it was I mean, I don't know i i've I've gotten complaints that this is either too systematic or not systematic enough, so um, whatever you can decide which which way it's bad um, but uh, it so I basically sat down and was like, I want to find people who are different in all these different like Valences so um, I looked at all male professions or all female professions or all like overwhelmingly liberal or overwhelmingly conservative areas and I found kind of people who were likely to be outliers in all those different categories so that in in whatever situation they're in they're completely different from everyone around them so that's how I ended up with a male preschool teacher a female NASCAR driver Um, like a sociology professor who studies BDSM in this like place that votes conservative by more than any other margin in the country Um, a you know uh, it was there was like a black Muslim woman who grew up in this um, tiny rural overwhelmingly evangelical Christian town Um, I wanted to find people who never had any kind of um, natural tribe or group that they could be part of to see how they dealt with it um and i have to say that like okay so i have 36 so it's not as you know as a scholar it's not a large study that would be 100 at least um so it's i wouldn't say that this is like scientific right this is more of like a social sociology like qualitative study where you interview people in depth and then kind of figure out what ties their stories together and what are some of the things you know like inevitably there's going to be similar themes, but ultimately everyone's going to tell you slightly different stuff. Like, I wouldn't say that, like, I was getting bored talking to people because they were all saying the same thing. They all had sort of different ways of thinking about it and different reactions to it. And, like, I feel like Julia Landauer, the NASCAR driver, was completely nonplussed about being a female NASCAR driver. Like, I I never really got a rise out of her of, like, this isn't fair or, like, I like, I'm so tired of sexist men or anything like that. Um, but some people were really, you know, really exhausted by the lack of, of friendship and lack of support that they had.
1: Um, yeah, that, I mean, so those are, first of all, the examples you named sounds super interesting. I'm really looking forward to reading about their specific stories. The one thing that comes to mind based off of what you just said, so for example, if you look at a female NASCAR driver, um, so, one thing that I think is powerful about the idea of weirdness and outsiders and that sort of stuff is that they bring a separate set of knowledge and skills, right? Um, so, this, uh, you see this a lot in academia, sort of like you mentioned, that sociology professor, but um, people who come from very different ways of thinking, whether that's from one academic department and to, you know, sort of transitioning at a point of career to another, or for example, um, you know, immigrants uh, have done, uh, like there, there is a very consistent thread that a lot of, at least in the, the fields that I've studied, like psychology and anthropology, so many of the people who have had the most profound sort of shifts and ideas are, are these very sort of culturally fluid people. Anyway, the point is, is that one thing that being an outsider gets you is a set of knowledge a knowledge base that is not had by the insiders and so your advantage is that you know things that they don't and so you when you guys are looking at the same problems the the in-group all of the the normal people are looking at it and they're coming at it with the same tools and then you, you as the outsider are standing over here like well i have this different tool set and i've got this weird wrench looking thing what if we try this and no one else has that weird wrench looking thing right? Okay. And so if you go back to the female NASCAR driver, it's not, it's not obvious to me why there would be an advantage to being an outsider in that case. Uh, There is nothing about being a woman that makes driving a car a different sort of thing um, or passing someone in the final lap. I can't, I can't imagine how different. So do you think that that was a consistent, is that consistent with what you saw in the different domains, and that sort of um, there is sort of division of, of, of how to use that intellectual advantage.
0: Yeah, so I totally agree with what you're saying, and that is actually something that is is um, evident in the research. Like people who are different um, in all these, uh, both like in lab settings or like observationally, um, tend to come up with more creative ideas. Um, so that there, I've like the book excerpt of mine in the magazine kind of makes that argument um you know so they would there's like studies where they'll like um you know have people do like be rejected from the group and then it turns out that rejection experience actually makes them more creative ultimately on the task um but uh and and then i believe some other studies that show that like um having dissenting opinions actually improves the decision making power of the group so it's actually helpful to have that someone kind of pumping the brakes or someone uh, kind of, whatever, waving a red flag and like, and like saying that this, this might not be the best way to go when you're all making a decision because it helps break up that, that groupthink um, that often, you know, leads to folly. Um, I will say in Julia's case, like, yeah, it's not, it's not immediately obvious, like why being a woman would help you drive a car faster, but driving a car fast is only like one part of NASCAR, it turns out. And I didn't know this before when I started. <laughs> um, um, so it turns out like most of NASCAR is raising money to drive the car. Oh, really? Um, it's like trying, yeah, it's like very, very expensive to drive these cars and get them. Um, you have to basically get the car ready for every race and you, um, it, it, it's like they get smashed up a lot and stuff and you have to like replace the brakes and the like transmission and all that stuff. So whose responsibility
1: and, is it to raise that money?
0: Yeah, so it's basically like the the driver, like the driver has to attract sponsors and the sponsors pay for all that stuff. So like when you see a car with like, uh, you know, whatever, Tylenol on the side of it, that's Tylenol like paying for, you know, Jeff Gordon or whatever to, to drive that car. Um, but it's it's actually like really hard to attract sponsors these days because viewership of NASCAR is, is going down on TV and... Um, there's just like better ways for brands brands have figured out like cheaper ways of advertising than than paying for NASCAR like so if you want to target a typical NASCAR viewer they might run a Facebook ad or run an Instagram ad rather than putting it on the side of the car um so Julia has found like some interesting ways around this and I don't know if it's because she's like female or just because she's really smart um but she has she's like she's like kind of done this thing where she blends like female like kind of stem uh like empowerment if that makes sense like the kind of like girls can be good at science too and like girls can be good at physics with like raising money so she'll give a bunch of speeches about like women in the stem professions or she'll like do events with like you know stem as a theme and like raise money that way that she can put toward racing Um, And that's actually one of the things that the the team that hired her as a driver for the race that I watched her for liked about her is that she's kind of um, creative and innovative in how she thinks about raising money. Um, And again, it's like hard to say, like, and if she were a man, she wouldn't be able to do that. But it's you know, it is, I think, interesting that like the the woman in the race is like the one who's coming up with this this new way of fundraising.
1: Yeah, totally. That's very interesting. So, um, what did you? Was there anything that you found in your research and in your interviews that surprised you, um, in the way uh, outsiders and weird people move about their world?
0: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, like everything. In some ways, everything was really surprising, right? Like everything was was like. You know, just like, none, like I said, none of the stories were boring. Like, they were all kind of, um, they were all just fascinating people to talk to. I think one thing that I didn't expect going into it was that um, so many of them had this um, desire to help other people. And I know that sounds really um, touchy-feely, but I do think that that is like a big motivator for a lot of people in going um kind of against the grain and in, in doing stuff that's that's really hard and that's met with, like, not immediate social acceptance a lot of the time. Um, so a good example of this is this woman I met named Mary Duffy, who uh, was one of the first plus-size models. And she became, like, one of the first plus-size modeling agents. Um, so she would recruit plus-size models back in, like, the 70s and the 80s when there the, it wasn't really a thing. Like, the idea of modeling was all about Heroin chic, skinny women Um, and like real women have curves and like body positivity, the Dove ad that none of that was a thing yet. Um, And people would laugh uh, like at this idea of like overweight models, they would be like fat models. Are you kidding me? Like. Um, her mom completely disowned her and was like, you know, I'll be your mom again when you can lose weight. Um, it was, it was like not a very, uh, easy path and and people like she made money, but she was not, um, I, I remember the one thing she told me was like, uh, she finally got like a news clip or something about her and her models. And her mom was like, who cares? You're on the front page for being fat. Um, and like, I I like was asking her like why did you do this? Like 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 you could have done you could have been an accountant and like who cares if you're like a slightly overweight accountant? No one's, you know, you won't be out there in the public eye being judged for what you're doing, but she was really passionate. I mean, she 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 had this like really deep desire to help other overweight women feel more empowered and feel more confident about their bodies and to change the way overweight women and plus-size women could dress and had like had a self-presentation that was more positive. And I, I kind of found that across the spectrum of, of these folks where they were just like, yeah, it's really tough for me and I'm gonna make it less tough for everyone else out there, um, which I thought was kind of cool and like didn't totally expect to be a motivator.
1: That is very cool, actually. Um, So sort of changing gears just a little bit, I'm curious to know what are your what are the what are the books that most inspire you or things that uh you know you consider really high level of uh, journalistic success that you would so maybe want to aspire to or, or templates that you looked at while you were uh writing your book
0: yeah, um I didn't really have a ton of templates like I think my book is like pretty um similar to other kind of psychology slash story slash like memoir-y books, like um, Chuck Duhigg has several like this, Adam Grant, um, uh, Grit, that book um, is is a little bit like this. I think mine leans a little bit more on on reporting than than some of those. Like I talked to a lot of like real people, whereas they kind of focused on the science. Um, I would say like the books that really inspire me and I'm like, oh my God, I'd love to do this, Someday, um, are like I, I mean the two that I've read probably in the past couple of years that were like mind blowing are um, the Spirit catches you and then you fall down, um, which is about uh, a, a case of epilepsy in the in the Hmong um, community in California. And uh, it sounds really strange and boring, but it is just so fascinating. It's, it's like this really interesting exploration of like how people think about healthcare and how people think about illness and wellness and um, how the medical system kind of works on a really granular, granular level. Um, and it's just really deeply reported. Um, and the other one is Random Family. Um, and that one uh, just follows a, a family uh, in New York um it honestly that is all all that it does like it it just is like a camera on on a family in new york um and it's a level of reporting i've done some reporting like that where you just hang out with people for days and days and it's really difficult and i just really admire the way that those writers were able to um to to kind of uh, capture that experience
1: and were those books that you've read fairly recently or were those books that you read early on
0: um Random Family, I read probably in 2017. And The Spirit Catches You, I read also in the last few years. Um, Kind of like earlier, like books that were like, I want to be a journalist. Um, Probably the one was like Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, That's more of a a memoir. um, And I read that in high school and kind of really was really moved and and inspired by it.
1: And anything else in that? Uh, Does anything else come into that category
0: things that that inspired me when i was young yeah yeah i'm trying to i i don't know that i like read that much nonfiction when i was like um in high school i feel like the things that really got me on the journalism track were um uh long magazine articles that i read when i was in in college um especially by gene weingarten um there's one called like I forget the exact headline, but it's like the Mr. Z- Zucchini or like the Great Zucchini or something. Um, and it it's about this like children's magician. Um, and that's all I'll say, because uh, to say more would be to spoil it. <laughs> but it was, it was just really great. And I was like, oh, my God, I really want to do this. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one book uh, that I really love, I did certainly consider it um, among my favorite books of all time that I think, uh, at least I think really resonates with the themes that you're interested in is the autobiography by Langston Hughes, the poet um, called uh, The Big C. And mm. it is basically a, um, it's an autobiography of the earlier parts of his life, basically, I mean, like, th- he through his sort of probably the, the high points of his success. Um, but basically, so uh, there's first of all, there is a ton of interesting shit in there because he's just an interesting person um as you can kind of imagine harlem renaissance poem uh, poet uh and he you know does these things like he had his father was this distant but wealthy man in mexico and so he we went down to spend time with him and then he one day just was i think he was in dc at the time but whatever it was um he just hopped on a ship one day and it took him to like he, he was working on this ship for like six months, going through Africa, and he came back with like a monkey and shit, and like brought it back to like his family in Chicago or whatever they were from. Um, and so there's all this interesting stuff. But the thing that I think really speaks to the pers- some of the perspectives that you're interested in is that he, for me, is the complete apotheosis of someone who went through his life as an observer. And so the way hmm. that the, the sort of the tone with which the book is written. Um, makes you think it i mean it puts you in the seat of being there and and seeing what's going on in the way that I think all uh you know sort of great novelists and journalists and some sort of stuff they capture an aspect of this but something about the way that he does it maybe it's because he is fundamentally a sort of weird outsider maybe because it is because he's a poet who knows um but he captures that in a way that I just think is absolutely marvelous
0: no totally yeah I actually just Ordered it while while you were talking about it because that sounds totally up my alley and I can't believe I haven't already read it. Yeah, that sounds
1: amazing. I I take my book recommendations very seriously because I think people's time is very valuable and reading a book. I mean, it, it takes it takes quite a while and you like it, there's an opportunity cost like you could be reading other better books. Yeah. And so um, I I try to you know sort of not go out and say oh look you should for sure read this this other thing unless I think it is really worth someone's time. That one I would just blanket statement. I don't think anyone's gonna uh, be upset by having spent the time to read that. Uh, so yeah. uh, you'll have to let me know what you think.
0: Oh, totally. No, I'm I'm very excited to dig into it um, when I have some free time again. <laughs>
1: well, I, I hope that that uh, starts to open up for you uh, once the I don't know how uh, how long you're gonna be in book launch, uh, you know, sort of twenty four seven mode. And I don't know how long the pandemic is going to be at its uh, you know sort of uh uh apex of, of the wave um but uh, i do i do wish some more restful times on you in the in the future
0: thank you yeah no i wish restful times for us all i mean i'm de- i definitely don't have it the worst of anyone um in this um in this situation so um yeah i, I hope that this this all that this hap this ends with minimal damage to humanity
1: Great. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to you. This was a lot of fun for me. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, reading your book and to encourage everyone else to do so as well.
0: Thank you so much. This was so fun. This is like one of the best podcast interviews I've done recently, and I've done a lot. So thank you again. I really appreciate you having me on.
1: All right. So that was my conversation with Olga Kazan. Her book is Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider's World. You can connect with her on Twitter at Olga Kazan um, or on her website, which is hername.com. As always, you can connect with me on Twitter at Cody Commerce and through my newsletter at codycommerce.com newsletter. And if you if you like the show, I'd appreciate it if you subscribed. But uh, even more than that, I'd appreciate it if you reach out to me directly. Send me an email. Send me a DM on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you Anyway, thank you for listening, and I will see you back here next week on Cognitive Revolution.